of our scripture this morning. And today that will be Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. You may be seated. A little bit of a tall order to try to cover all this today, but um, there's a method to my madness. So, But this will finish the book of Titus as we finish this message today. <clears throat> and this chapter, Mike, could make a good two, three, maybe even four messages. Um, but this passage, <clears throat> especially in these first two verses where we'll start, really connects well with later verses in the chapter. So like it's all going to be tied together as one thought and then end with some basic instructions and greetings which come at the end. <clears throat> and I think the big picture, the overall flow and tone is important to get here, hence all 15 verses at once. So verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, uh, my screen just jumped up here, uh, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Um, we need to remember where we've been in Titus <clears throat> as we've worked through these pastoral epistles. We went through 1 Timothy and now Titus, and we'll turn our attention to 2 Timothy next week, Lord willing. In these pastoral epistles... First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul is writing to give instructions to his young disciples on how they are to conduct themselves and in how to instruct the churches that they're working with. Timothy was in Ephesus, and we found out early in Titus that Titus is on the island of Crete. Um, Titus was to appoint elders in all the different churches in Crete, going from town to town, finding the men who are qualified to teach and serve the churches in those towns. Paul also warned Titus that he had his work cut out for him since Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, according to one of their own. And of course, Paul's admonition to help these Cretan believers was the doctrine. That's what he admonishes with. That's what he exhorts with. That's what he encourages with. The sound, pure, holy, God-wrought, direct revelation doctrine. For older men, older women, younger women, younger men, ministers and slaves, all kinds of people, 
the grace of God had appeared to them and was to train them all for godly living. Now, today we start with some final instructions for these all kinds of people. Remind them, Paul says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Well, now we probably don't need to be reminded of what submission means, but it does mean to subject oneself to, to obey. So, Christians in Crete and in Beckley, you be submissive to rulers and authorities. Obey them. Subject yourselves to them. Now that's one way that followers of Jesus can show God to be beautiful as they obey the teachings and commands of their Lord. Listen to me. Christians love authority. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. Christians love authority. Why? Well, we saw last week and we've seen many times throughout the Bible in the different places where different people are called to be submissive to different kinds of people. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ himself. And there's no authority that is given that is not from God. So good leaders, bad leaders, godly leaders, ungodly leaders, be submissive to them. And some of you right now are going, yeah, but. No, no yeah, buts. Be submissive to them. Because Christians love authority. And that's the simple, clear command of the Scriptures. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. And yes, there are exceptions for sure. When the governing authorities would demand disobedience to God's law, but those are the exceptions. Not the governing, normal, biblical rule. You had better have a clear Biblical, thus saith the Lord, if you're going to have any attitude or action other than submission to leaders and authorities. Because the repeated, thus saith the Lord in God's word, is to submit to those who are in authority. And Paul says that these submitting disciples are to be obedient. They are to do what the leaders say heart and hands in submission to their leaders. Heart and hands in submission to their leaders. The internal giving rise to the external. That's tough, y'all. You may not like those who are in authority over you. In your home, in your church, at your job... In the government, county, state, national level, and you are to submit to them and be obedient to them as a Christian. That's a command. Paul then says that these believers and us are to be ready for every good work. And the connection there with submission to leaders makes it seem like submission to authority is a prerequisite to doing good works. There's a connection there. Doing good works is not just being nice or kind. It's also being cooperative. And hold on to that word. And doing what's best for everybody. Not just a person or some people. But it's not just our hearts and our hands. Check this out. Verse 2 says... Just, just Let's just pause a second. It's up there, but I'm going to read this again. After saying, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for a good... To speak evil of no one. <laughs> to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now don't miss the scope of this verse. 
In calling Christians to submission to leaders and to doing good works, we are called to speak evil of whom? Absolutely no one. Speak evil of no one. No one. Not one person. The word for speak evil is blasphemeo. And it means to slander. Don't let any word or words come out of your mouth that slanders any other person. The definition of slander includes things like to speak reproachfully, to rail at, to revile, to make false or defamatory statements about somebody, to blaspheme. And Christians... Do not do that to or about anyone. Don't! Especially, the context seems to dictate, those in authority. No one, but with a focus on leaders, good ones, bad ones, anyone. And Paul finishes the line by adding to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now again, notice the totality that this implies. What we feel, what we think, what we do, what we say, our tone, our posture, inside and out. Avoid quarreling. Avoid it. Run from it. Don't go where it is. Social media? Christians are not to be those who are known for their Facebook rants or Twitter feuds. Avoid them. Remind them to be gentle. Do we possibly know a Savior who called himself gentle? Maybe. Be gentle, Christian. Be gentle, church. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That word perfect courtesy is complete meekness. Meekness is power under control and power in submission to the governing authorities above them. Show perfect, complete meekness toward all people. Every single one of them. These lying, evil beasts and lazy gluttons in Crete and in Beckley are to be different. They're to stick out. They are not to be like the culture around them. Thank goodness this is just for Cretans, right? (laughs) Oh, whoops, yeah, oh, Leaders, authority, quarreling, gentleness, meekness, speaking evil of no one. Speaking evil of no one. That'd be awful if that was for us and for our time, right? Thank God it's just cultural for their time, right? I mean, I've got rights. Right? Let's move on. And see Paul's reasoning for these commands. Verse 3 is a doozy. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. (laughs) Remind them of all of that stuff in verses 1 and 2. Why? For we ourselves were once. Paul is showing that all these people we may have disdain for, all these people we would quarrel with, all these people who are so bad and so wrong and so stupid are just like us. And he gives a list of seven characteristics that show how we view these people and really it's just a mirror that shows how we are ourselves. All of us once were. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, 
All of us once passed our days in malice and envy. All of us were hated by other people. And all of us hated one another. Oop, I misspelled that. Hating on another. That's what it says there. (laughs) That works too though, right? (laughs) Hating one another. All of us. All of y'all have had typos too, so... So to quote Goose from Top Gun, the list is long but distinguished, right? Or maybe not so much. All of us once were all of these things. Every single one of these things. And looking at that list, let's just say it's not very flattering, right? And it was every single one of us. All of us once were these things. And I would guess from what Paul's bringing, where Paul's bringing this up here, it's him saying those things that you would slander others for, including your leaders, you once were yourself. So zip your lip. All those things that we would slander someone for probably fall into one or more of these categories. And they're bad. But every single one of us have or have had them in common. So why would you slander someone else who's just doing what you did before? Or have you forgotten that you too were and are imperfect? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were jerks too. And probably still are. We ourselves were at one time foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It is an awfully good habit to remember from where you came when looking at the faults of others that you are so prone to condemn and slander. And we were, every single one of us, awful. Awful person. Awful person. But, four through seven. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. That's one sentence. And it is a doozy. What a mine of doctrinal and doxological treasure here. Paul has just come out of calling us all to remember how bad off and how bad we all were at one time. So don't slander others because we're all cut from the same cloth. And it's a rotten, moth-eaten, filthy cloth. But... But something happened. Actually, someone happened. Capital S. There was an appearing, an epiphany. Like we saw last week with grace appearing. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Remember it. Do you remember You were dead in sin, a sinner from your conception. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. But God, our Savior, appeared. Showering you with goodness and loving kindness in that He saved you. He saved you. While you were sinning, while you were his enemy, he saved you. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Isaiah says our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
No, your salvation was not because of anything you did. No, your salvation was not because of anything you did. But according to His own mercy. Now register that. According to His own mercy. He did not have to. He owed it to no one. We all deserved His just wrath. But out of mercy, out of pity, out of unearned love, God saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how God saved us. It would not be a bad idea to take this coming week and just meditate on that clause. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how God saved us. By the washing of regeneration. Washing means bathing. We were bathed. In what? We were bathed in regeneration. I promise you the first step of your salvation was regeneration. You must be born again. And that word regeneration means new birth, reproduction, renewal, recreation, regeneration. Hence, a renovation. The production of a new life consecrated to God, a radical change of mind for the better. God bathed us in new life that we did not have before. God submerged us in rebirth. He took our dirty, nasty, sinful lives and renovated them to consecrate them to Himself. You, we, I, us were born again. And it was so... That rebirth, that new birth, that regeneration was so by the work of the Holy Spirit bringing renewal into our dead bones. The Holy Spirit who is very God of very God blew in like a holy wind and breathed life into us. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Do you see the Trinitarian work in your salvation? God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, God the Son. If the God of your salvation is not triune, you are not born again. The Father poured the Spirit out onto and into us through the Son. Because Jesus the Son, Christ our Savior, justified us by His grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified means that we were cleared of wrongdoing. It's a once done deal at a point in the past. And we were justified. How? By His grace, His unmerited favor, chosen by God to belong to God for the glory of God. And once justified, we became heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were regenerated, justified, adopted, and hence we became heirs, joint heirs with our brother Savior, Jesus, according to the hope of eternal life. And we talked about hope last week. Our blessed hope... And we talked about hope and inheritance these past few Wednesdays as well. And the hope we have, the anchor that shall not be removed, is eternal life. Superabundant, overflowing, too much to handle, running out of our lives into the lives of others, God type of life. That's eternal life. And that's our hope that we were born again unto by the grace and work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. So, don't slander others who are just like you used to be. Be different because God recreated you to be different. To give grace because you've been shown grace. To be like Him in His power for His praise and for His glory. There's a lot there, but we've got to move on. Verse 8. 
The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Oh, it's one of those, this saying is trustworthy sayings. Remember them? They were the ones we've, been, we've seen since back in 1 Timothy. And the saying is trustworthy had become like a catechizing type of statement. And these statements were commonly taught to help remember basic tenets of the faith. And I'd say that verses 4 to 7 surely qualify for basic tenets of the faith. The saying is trustworthy. Indeed it is. So, Paul says, since this is true and is to be held to by all those who believe, Titus, I want you to insist on these things. Now, I just want to show you all this Greek word for insist on, just because it's fun. The ab eb ahi oom. Ma'ahi. The heck? It just means to affirm, to affirm strongly, to assert confidently. And I did just want to show you that. You know, how am I supposed to pronounce that? I can't even say gyro sandwich right, right? <laughs> yeah, this is a trustworthy statement. It's to be held by all those who believe, so insist on these things. And I love that that word insist means to affirm constantly. The salvation story of God's people is trustworthy, so affirm it constantly. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to each other. Preach it to everybody all the time. Always be affirming it. Why? So that those who have believed in God, those who have put their faith in His saving work, may be careful to devote themselves to good works, which has been the pattern and theme of this whole letter. Sound doctrine leading to good deeds. Since these people know that God has saved them, they need to be careful to devote themselves to doing good works because, the last sentence says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. I'd say so. If you've spent any amount of time working in the public, I would guess at some point you've made this statement. I hate people. I've said it many times. But you know what? That's awful. Because they are we and we are they. And we are called to serve people. And when we do good works, it's excellent and profitable for people. For which people? The saved ones who are doing the deeds or the recipient of their deeds? And I'd say yes. I'd say it's both, but I think Paul means those doing the good deeds, by the way. They're storing up treasure in heaven as they give and serve those other people, so it's profitable for them. But it's also profitable for the people being served, which may be an opportunity for God to move in their lives and to save them. Be careful hating people. We want to do what's profitable for people. We want to love and serve people by the good deeds that are produced by the sound doctrine in our lives. And so now, in the next verse, we head back to those who go the other way. And this is where I think it kind of ties back in, which is why we've got to take this whole thing as one thought. But... Verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Know the doctrine, do good deeds, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. There are those in the church who are surely still engaging in some bickering and arguing in the Christian camp, it would seem. Imagine that. These Cretans really were bad people, weren't they? So Paul tells Titus to avoid again, shun, turn from, don't be around four things. Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. This is a whole lot like what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy. And again, if you'll remember, the Judaizers were everywhere, stirring up strife and contention against Paul and his teachings. And these are the types of things that these Judaizers would use as misdirections around the plain, simple truth. They'd stir up foolish controversies, making issues out of things that aren't issues. 
Oh, you say you're adopted into God's family? Can you trace your family line back to Abraham? Or, hey, I hear you talking about triunity and one God and three persons. You say God's one, but how can one God be three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one God. There's one. Oh, you say loving your neighbors, fulfilling the law? Do you know that there are 613 commandments in the law and prophets and writings? You know what Paul says? Don't engage it. (laughs) Paul says, don't engage it. We think we've got to defend the word of God. God needs no defender. Avoid them. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Even if you can give a good answer, it's not going to fix anything. It's not going to sway anyone. Like an online debate, right? How many people have ever changed their minds because of your eloquent pontifications on the old WWW? I've got the answer to that question. It's zero. Zero. Nobody has said, oh my goodness, he's right. I'm wrong. And I've changed my mind. Nobody ever has that happened. You say, you can't know that for sure. Yes, I can. (laughs) Avoid these things. Why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul had just said that good deeds are profitable for people. And here he says these controversies and quarrels are unprofitable. For who? And again, yes is the answer. They're unprofitable for the one arguing and they're unprofitable for the one they're arguing against. And they lead to the ruin of their hearers is what he told Timothy. Those watching, those listening, those looking on, it leads to their ruin. They are unprofitable and worthless, period. So avoid them. Did you catch that? Avoid them. Don't do it. Let me get rid of the contraction. Do not do that. Don't. But don't just not do it. Look at verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's tough stuff right there, y'all. So turns out there's things to not do and things to do if people do the things that you're not supposed to do. Did you follow that? As for the person who stirs up division, as for those folks who do engage in these arguments, these dissensions and such, well, what do we do with them? After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Hmm. Now, what's that mean? (laughs) I think it's pretty clear, right? If someone is stirring up division, if somebody is starting and carrying on arguments and things that divide people, then warn them once. Hey man, that's really divisive and argumentative and the Bible says we shouldn't do that. Well, who do you think you are? Okay. You see it, you hear it, you feel it again. You go to them the second time. If they don't heed the first warning... Then warn them again. I mean, you're still doing it. The Bible says stop that. Avoid that. And maybe they're pushing it on you. Maybe that's where you say, I'm not going to engage in this line of talk. I'm not going to argue with you. Then they come back to you with it again. What are you supposed to do? Talk to the hand because the face don't understand. Now, wait a second. Does that really mean that? I can't explain it away. There's nothing in the context 
that makes me say, well, maybe there's exceptions to this, or maybe he doesn't really mean what he's saying. Now, here's the other side of the question. Is this someone in the church or someone outside the church? Well, we're not to discipline those outside the church. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. If y'all can go there up on the screen, my thing's not working. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And I think we could very safely from our passage today insert or argumentative. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, I don't need to read that again. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, while this starts out dealing with sexual immorality, it becomes clear that the principle is far beyond just that particular sin. We as Christians, we as the church, do not judge outsiders, but we, capital D, capital O, we do judge those within the church. You say, you can't judge me. Yes, I can. And you know what? You can judge me too. We do judge those within the church. So these instructions back in Titus would almost certainly be referring to someone who's in the church. I think it's sound advice for how we deal with unbelievers too, by the way. If there's someone that is constantly bringing things up to argue with you, to prove you wrong, to raise your hackles, it's probably a good idea to avoid that person as much as you can instead of gravitating towards them. Let's see what they wrote today. No, don't, don't, just don't. In this instance here in Crete, if there's a Judaizer who's not a believer who is pushing the buttons of those in the church, it would probably be a good idea to avoid those folks as much as possible instead of gathering ammunition to try to shoot them down. We had some Jehovah's Witnesses coming around when we were in Tennessee. And after about three visits, and man, I was getting, ooh, man, I was getting, ooh, I was ready. I was like, come on, brother, bring it. I know exactly what to you. Getting worked up and arguing with them two or three, I think it was three times, going round and round. I finally said, hey, 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 we have a fundamental difference about who the Bible portrays Jesus to be. I'm sure that the Bible says he's God and you say he's not. You're not going to change my mind and it doesn't seem that I'm going to change yours, so we should probably just discontinue these arguments. Stop coming. No sense in going back and forth and forth and back over and over. It's not fruitful. So break it off. Avoid it. Have nothing to do with them. And that's unbelievers. But again, the passage we're dealing with here primarily is those in the church. Warn them twice. Then have nothing more to do with them. Now let me ask you. Any of you all here comfortable doing that? Going up to somebody and saying, Brother, I just notice your online presence, even here at the church, it's just argumentative. I love you, and I'm just warning you, run from that stuff. And then it happens again. Are you comfortable saying, Hey, man, you know, I, I still see it, and you're still coming at me with stuff. I'm going to warn you again, the Bible says to avoid that stuff. And then they come back with it again. And you're like, you know what? I'm done. I'm not having this conversation. And then you, now listen, purposefully shun them. Any of y'all comfortable doing that? And yet that's exactly what we're called to do. Have nothing to do with them. Warn them twice. 
then have nothing more to do with them. Why? Paul says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Is this person saved? I don't know that answer. Some people are just difficult. Can I get an amen? No, I wouldn't say that. Come on, people. Some people are difficult. They're warped and sinful. And so am I. They aren't working on repentance. They're just pot stirrers, keeping things going. How are we to address those people? Warn them once, warn them a second time, and then have nothing more to do with them because they're warped and sinful. Hopefully, the distance and the evident intentional shunning after a first and second warning are clear enough to move that person to repentance. That's the goal. But, Paul says, these people being warped and sinful are self-condemned. They very well may not change. There are always tares in with the wheat. It's not our job to separate them, but rather to wisely and cautiously coexist with them in a way that's not harmful to the wheat. Identify that tear that is in the church and be on guard. Maybe they are wheat. Maybe they're tares. They look a lot alike. But Paul says they're warped, sinful, and self-condemned. If you are put off by some people in the church, well, guess what? I hate your luck. It's our plight. It's our calling. And what attitude should you have toward that person? Love them. Serve them. Distance yourself from them out of love when you have to. Do good works for their benefit when you can. And remember that you are just like they are. And I'm going to ask you this morning, y'all. Do we have the freedom in this group of people to address each other this way? To go and look somebody in the face and say, I see a sinful pattern in your life and I love you and I need to let you know I'm praying for you and I'm here for you. Or, hey, you did it again, man. We've talked about this. And they come up and they tell you every reason why it's okay what they did. And finally you're like, I love you. And I think right now the best thing we can do is just separate until you repent. Surely that's not what he means. We'll talk about it more in application. Verses 12 and 13, as we near the end of our study today in the book overall. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing. So apparently Titus's work on Crete is a temporary assignment. Paul sends to send one or two, maybe, Artemis or Tychicus to Crete to either fetch or relieve Titus at some point. At that time, Paul tells Titus to come to Nicopolis, where Paul is. Now, Nicopolis was a common city name at that time with a record of some nine cities called Nicopolis. We don't know exactly where this is, but it's probably on the west coast of Greece. We've got a map, John, if you can pull that map up. If you see up there... Epirus, and then down. Look at the big pointer. (laughs) Over here, John. Come this way, son. On down, on down. There's Nicopolis that this probably is referencing. We don't know that for sure, but just so you can get a visual there. Um, Now, the only reason I really bring that up outside of just the text saying it is that John MacArthur says that it was probably in Nicopolis that Paul was arrested for the final time, according to history. Having decided to spend the winter there, it would seem he stirred up somebody's hornet's nest that got him sent to Rome where he would lose his life ultimately. It would also seem from Paul's statement in verse 13 that two guys, Zenos, who was a lawyer who we don't know anything else about, and Apollos, who much is said of in the New Testament, these two guys were planning on traveling to and through Crete. Paul calls on Titus to give them what they need to keep moving on, speed them on their way, see that they lack nothing. I just love Paul's networking and maneuvering. 
He's got so many pieces on the board moving in order to further the gospel, and he's networking and interworking these people together. Old Titus, by the way, Zenus and Apollos are coming. Help them out. Give them what they need. Keep them moving because they got somewhere to be. I got them doing something. It's really pretty cool. Keep it moving. Now finally, well, not finally, pin ultimately. Verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It's like he just couldn't end the letter without saying it one more time. Titus, teach these people. Let them learn to devote themselves to good works. The word devote means to care for, to give attention to. Let them learn to give special attention to being people who do good works. And now watch this. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This seems to convey a focus on not exhausting yourself to doing everything for everyone all the time. We just cannot and we are not to always say yes because it's a good deed, a good work. Good works are to be in order to help cases of urgent need primarily. Those things that are of urgent need take precedence. Hey, can you come over and help me iron my curtains? Uh, no, i got to go help somebody get their car back on the road today. See what I'm saying? You can't do both. And I think some wrinkles in some curtains are not as important as somebody being able to make it to work. This is where we talk about the psychological buzzword for years now, boundaries, Right? We just can't always say yes to everybody. And it feels like the biblical thing to do to deny yourself and exhaust yourself trying to please and help everybody. And you cannot do it. You cannot do it. And you're less and less and less effective for those cases of special urgent need because you're so spread thin you can't get to them or you can't address them completely. I promise you, If you devote yourself to helping cases of urgent need, this will keep you busy enough. We have to make sure we're discerning in our good works, not just being good to be good. Doing good works to help cases of urgent need. There are good deeds, it would seem, that are unfruitful. They're time stealers. They're conscience soothers. And they're not good works that help lovingly and lastingly. Learn to devote yourself to those good works that are going to help urgent need. Primarily. Then work yourself out from there. And finally, verse 15, our last verse. Today in our last verse in Titus. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. It's kind of a standard of Paul to send greetings from people who are with him to the recipients of his letters and also to call on them to greet those who are with them. And Paul doesn't get into a list of names like he does in some other letters here in Titus. He just says, all who are with me send greetings to you. And he doesn't single anyone out on Crete to address. That may speak of his lack of knowledge of who was actually there. He didn't spend much time there in his travels, it seems. It's just generic, hey, everybody here says hey, tell everybody there hey. And finally, he says very Paul-ishly, grace be with you all. We said at the end of 1 Timothy, Paul can't think of anything better to wish for Titus and those around him than grace. It also seems that this statement lends the letter to public reading. I can imagine Titus getting this letter and then sharing it with his co-workers and the churches there. Hey, I got a letter from Paul. Y'all listen. And he reads it, and at the end of it, they hear Paul wishing grace for and to them, which is a fitting end indeed. So we turn our attention to application from this last chapter chapter of this little letter. I don't know what happened there. We'll be looking at four D's. Discreet, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, discreet, discipline, D-I-S-C-I-P-L-I-N-E, discreet, discipline, deeds, and doctrine. Because those have got to be there, right? Because it's Titus.
This first one, land of Goshen. Discreet. You may know what the word discreet means. I could not have told you before I did the research on the World Wide Web. The word discreet means careful and circumspect in one's speech. Careful and circumspect in one's speech. So the application for discreet is be very mindful. Be very purposeful in what you say. Christian. Talk on purpose. And the clear biblical direction is to say only things that build up. If it doesn't edify, don't say it. From what we saw in today's passage, I think we've got a lot of work to do in our speech, don't we? I could kind of simplify what we read today and what we saw today. Stop talking bad about other people. All other people. Every single person. Don't say bad, slanderous things about any other human being, living or dead. How much less do you think you talk? Governing authorities, other denominations, bald people, Literally, think about it. How much wouldn't you say if you purposely said, I'm not going to say a single bad thing about another person? Alistair Begg quoted this poem. This is really good. This is by Grace W. Castle, and it's called Suppose. It was written in 1912. If all that we say in a single day, with never a word left out, were printed each night, In plain black and white, it would make strange reading, no doubt. And then just suppose, before our eyes close, we have to read the whole record through. Then wouldn't we sigh, wouldn't we try, a great deal less talking to do. And I more than half think that many a kink would be smoother in life's tangled thread if half what I say in a single day, were to be left forever unsaid. What if I was the kind of person who knew what not to say as much as I knew what to say? I would say S-H-U-T-U-P, but I've gotten in trouble for that before. Kids are like, why did he say that? So I won't say that, but sometimes we just need to close our mouths. James talks about the evil of the tongue, right? How great a forest is set on fire by such a little tiny member of our bodies. And you know what comes out of this mouth? What we're full of in our hearts. Let's make it a source of common encouragement and accountability that we're not going to talk bad about other people. And if somebody is talking bad about another person, and we say, hey man, that's slanderous. Well, it's true, it's slanderous. Let's not do this. Would that hurt your feelings if somebody said that to you? Let's be those people. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. 
Proverbs 10, 19. A lot, a lot about the tongue in Proverbs. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The more you talk, the more prone you are to sin. So know when to be quiet. And it's probably more often than you're being quiet right now. And if you hear me saying something bad about another person, call me on it. Well, I'm just telling the truth. Call me on it. And know that I'm going to do the same for you because I love you. Not because I'm mad at you or think I'm better than you. We are they and they are we. Discreet. Now, discipline. We have to, have to, have to, have to engage and exhort one another on a personal, on a private, on a sinful level. We have got to be a group of people who are confronting each other about our sins. We are told in the scripture to confess our sins one to another. How much of that's going on in this group of people? Are we not to judge one another? Are we not to call sin, sin in the life of another believer? And the answer is a crystalline clear yes. We've already established that yes, I can indeed judge you. Part of covenant membership is saying I want that in my life. And if you're going to be here, whether you're a covenant member or not, we are to call you on your sin. Why? Because we're better than you? No, we're just like you. And we love you enough to call you out of sinfulness. For me to walk up to you, for you to walk up to me and to say, hey, you really need to work on blank. This is love. Direct confrontation. Oh, I don't like confrontation. Lovingly calling people away from a sinful pattern. If we always get along about everything, we are not being honest with each other. And if we don't see other people's sinful patterns, we aren't really looking into their lives or getting into their lives like we should. You say, well, you're talking about being invasive. Yes, I am. I'm not talking about camping outside their window and watching what they're watching. Oh, write that down. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. I promise you, as I look into every set of eyes in this building this morning, you've got sinful habits and patterns in your life. And as your eyes all look at me, I've got them too. And if we can't see those things, we're not looking hard enough. And we're not engaged enough in each other's lives. And now listen, I'm not talking about talking about them to each other. That's not discreet. Discipline says talk to them. You offended me should be followed by the hearer with godly sorrow and repentance. It shouldn't be followed by, well, you shouldn't be offended. Or other signs of self-justification or not caring about the other person. And if you confront someone and lovingly discipline them, and they don't listen, it needs to be obvious to them that you're not having anything to do with them on purpose. Why? Because you love them. And you want to see them escape their sinful habits and patterns. Warn them once. Warn them twice. And then have nothing to do with them. And that should be obvious. 
hopefully moving them toward repentance. That's always the goal. Their repentance, their escaping sinful habits and patterns is always the goal with this discipline. Not pointing out faults and failures so that you can gloat over somebody. I am you and you are me. Your sin may look a little different than mine, but please call me on it. Call me maybe. We have to be a group of people who lovingly discipline one another. We have to be, or this doesn't work. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I'll just leave that alone. Discreet, discipline, deeds. You can't read this chapter or this letter at all without seeing the direct command for followers of Jesus to be doing good deeds. And not just random good deeds, but those that help cases of urgent need. We saw it all through today's chapter. Be discerning in your good deeds. Look for those needs that are cases of urgent need and be diligent. Make it your attention. Make it your focus that I want to be a person who does good deeds that meet urgent needs. God, make me that person. Help me to see the urgent needs. Help me to dig in and pry and ask people, what's your urgent need? How can I help you? Because I want to be somebody who's doing good deeds, not for my conscience sake. That's a side result but so that it might be fruitful for you and me and that God might be glorified because of the deeds that I'm doing to help meet the special needs in your life. The urgent needs. If there are no deeds, we're probably just fooling ourselves as far as our salvation. You don't work for your salvation, but when your salvation works in you, it's going to produce good deeds. The fruit of the Spirit will be produced And that's a life that is given to good deeds. Finally, discreet, disciplined deeds and doctrine. Devote yourself to the doctrine. Because the doctrine, especially the doctrine of your salvation, is the key to everything in your Christian life. The doctrine is the key to everything in your Christian life. Everything. John, can you go back to verse 4? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Know the doctrine so that you can do the deeds. Christian, do you know what God has done to save you? Do you think about it? Do you reflect on it? Meditate on it? Share it with other people? And if you're not a Christian here, Jesus Christ died a physical death to pay the penalty by the shedding of His blood for your sins. Only the blood of Jesus is sufficient to remove the wrath of God from your life. Nothing else and no one else will work. And it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Call out in faith for the saving work of God to be applied to your life through the power of the Holy Spirit as He regenerates, as He applies the payment of your sin debt through the blood of Jesus so that your sins can be removed as far as the east is from the west.
It is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Know that. Reflect on that. Dive deep into that each and every day so that your deeds may be good and fruitful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your perfect plan, for your perfect power to save sinners, to sanctify saints, and to help us be fruitful, doing good works so that other people may profit and our profit may be in heaven. Help us, God, to be people who know how to restrain our lips. Help us, God, to be people who discipline one another out of love. And may our deeds show the beauty of your doctrine. For your glory and for our good and for the good of those around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat soup and sandwiches.